Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hello and welcome to a brand new Arsblog Arscast right here on Arsblog.com. How are you? Hope you're well. Hope all is good with you and yours. Thank you for being here as always. It is an interlull week, which means there's no football. Well, it does, uh, there's football. Obviously, there's football. But uh, it's football that I have very little interest in uh, beyond the fact that I would like our players who are involved with their countries to go away and have a very nice time but to come back safe and fit and happy and healthy and injury-free uh, before we finish our Premier League season. Ten more games to go. Ten games which are going to be truly defining for very many reasons. It's been a quiet week, generally speaking, apart from, of course, the Arsenal women being involved in a Champions League quarterfinal. Well done to them. 1-1 draw against Wolfsburg at the Emirates on Wednesday night, setting it up very nicely for the second leg. Remember, you can get all the news previews, reviews, uh, all of it on Arsblog News. You can check out the section specially dedicated uh, to the Arsenal women. Tim and the crew doing a great job there. And fingers crossed the Arsenal women can do the job next week in Germany. The one thing that has resonated from last weekend and our 1-0 win against Aston Villa, uh, it's to do with Bakayo Saka, obviously. The uh, comments that he made after the game where he said he had a little word with the referee, he literally said the words, I'm not complaining. That's the first thing he I'm not complaining, but I just wanted to let the referee know, blah, blah, blah. But it has produced a number of uh, hot takes, I guess you would say. We live in an era, a culture of hot takes where a lot of people feel like they have to have a strong opinion about everything. And look, the reality is they don't. Nobody cares what you think about this or that or the other. And, you know, that goes for me, too. Nobody cares what I think about a lot of stuff. But conversely, there's a lot of stuff I just don't care about. So I don't talk about it. However, let's imagine that it is my job to talk about something. Therefore, people would expect me to talk about it with some knowledge or expertise or whatever it might be. Let's say Arsenal. And if stuff happens, you know, as part and parcel of my job that I tend to have an opinion about things like that. Let's broaden this out. And let's say you're a former football player. And let's say it's your job to talk about football. There are two ways you could do the job. One is to keep up with everything that's going on. Amass as much knowledge about every club, team, league player as you possibly could. And when you talk, use that knowledge to give an informed, if not necessarily always expert, opinion. The other way you could do it is just to make shit up on the spot and hope for the best. 
And given the editorial standards at many outlets these days, that's probably the easiest way because then you don't have to, you know, waste time watching football, reading things, understanding things, or any of that stupid nonsense. And there was a perfect example of that this week uh, on ESPN, former Liverpool player Steve Nicholl talking about Bukayo Saka, and this is what he had to say. And he is a guy who doesn't take an awful lot to come off the field because he's had quite a few... He's had quite a few knocks where he, ha- he hasn't played the next game for two or three weeks or whatever. So if that's me, my football brain is telling me, right, don't put yourself in a situation where you're going to get caught. As the uh, the Twitter thing goes, tell me you've never watched Bakayo Saka without telling me you've never watched Bakayo Saka. He's not somebody who is easy to kick out of the game. He doesn't miss two or three weeks at a time because somebody fouled him. I saw Sam Dean from The Telegraph tweet about how Bukayo Saka has only missed two games in his entire career through injury. And this is just another example of how a lot of people who are paid good money to talk about football can't even do the bare minimum in terms of research and preparation, most of which involves just sitting down and watching football on television. They just make stuff up on the spot as he did. And the broadcasters and the channels who allow people like that to talk such absolute shite without someone coming along and saying, you know what, you, you're, you're wrong. You're completely and utterly wrong here. You can have an opinion about something that happened on a pitch, but you can't willfully just make up facts on the spot to suit your own puerile, outdated archaic, anachronistic dinosaur attitude about physicality in football. You just, you can't do that. You shouldn't be allowed to do that. And I've seen people say, you know what? It's uh, it's clickbait or they're just doing it to get a reaction. No, it's not. It's not clickbait and they're not doing it to get a reaction. They're doing it because they're just really bad at their job and people are reacting to how bad they are and they don't want to put up with it really anymore because they know they can get better. They know they can get better from their club-specific podcasts and blogs and fan media, which is not always perfect. There are always going to be some things you don't like, but the good ones don't tend to get their facts wrong or they don't tend to misrepresent situations because they know they'll be pulled up on it. Steve Nichols' football brain. You have my undivided attention. Right, let's get on with the show. And to continue this conversation and talk about lots more besides, delighted to welcome back former gunner Adrian Clark. Hi, Adrian, how are you? Hello, Andrew. Yeah, I'm all right. Good. Yeah, all good. Season season is um, coming to a nice little climax, isn't it? I'm, um, yeah, I'm excited with the direction of the team, so it's all good. Yeah, cool. Well, look, we'll get to that. I do want to start, though, by talking about Bakayo Saka, and we're going to talk about him as a footballer and his importance to the team, but uh, there's a bit of punditry going around this morning in the wake of the very, I think, pretty mild comment he made on BT Sport, um, which was then picked up by the media. And perhaps if you're going to give Steven Gerrard any slight benefit of the doubt, the, the way those comments were presented to him might have provoked the kind of reaction that that um, that he gave us. But Bakayo Saka said quite simply, look, I'm a, a player who likes to run with the ball. I should get, oh, yeah, I'm paraphrasing. Uh, referees need to be aware that that's my game. I am fouled a lot, basically. And he is. He is a player who is who is fouled a lot. Um, 
do you worry about him and do you worry maybe that comments like the ones that Steven Gerrard made um, might not be beneficial to him if, for example, other players think that Saka is somebody who can be fouled a lot? How do we find that line between, okay, this is a guy, this is a young, precocious talent who does deserve protection, but also if there is a perception that you can be kicked, maybe you get kicked. <laughs> Yeah, uh, it is a difficult one. I think that Bukayo, you know, will maybe learn for, f- from it himself, and, and maybe just think it's not worth the aggravation. I'll just, I'll just let my football do the talking in in future. I think he absolutely has a point. He's it, not just in the, in that game against Aston Villa, but he's been kicked from pillar to post by many teams this season, and it does feel that. The opposition teams often get away with more. You know, they often get away with two or three on him before the third one gets punished. And I think if if referees were to 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 look at some of the some of the forceful challenges that go in on him and and clamp down on them very very quickly, then it stops it. Mm. And and I think that's all that Bukayo Saka was was meaning there. Um, so yeah, it's. I mean, there's been so much nonsense spoken about Bukayo Saka in in the wake of what happened at the weekend. It's really irritating. I just think Bukayo has to has to play his normal game. I personally, I played obviously in a similar position to Bukayo. I quite liked being kicked. I know it sounds bizarre, but but in a way, I, I, it, it, it told me that I had the better of my man, that they, that, you know, I was nicking the ball past them and all they could do was take me out. And I took confidence from that. And, and I would like to think that, that Saka would do that moving forwards as well, but we don't want him injured. We don't want him suffering mm. in the in the way that Jack Wilshere did down the years. Jack, quick, such quick mind, quick feet. His ankles got clattered, didn't they? And mm. and, and we, we have to be aware that, you know, or wary that, that we don't want that to happen to, to Saka. But oh, absolutely, he should not change his game. He's got to run at defenders, what he does best. Um, and he's got to wear some of these fouls maybe as a badge of honour. What about the idea that, you know, the certain teams or certain players, and we're harking back to maybe some of the Arsene Wenger days here, they don't like the physical aspect of the game. And that's the portrayal that certain sections of the media are putting across, that they don't like to be kicked. You say you like to be kicked, but maybe that's just your bag. But, you know, <laughs> the, there, I think there was a time when the perception was Arsenal were maybe a smaller technical team after the after – the, the the Invincibles, which was an amazing team, but this was a group of men who could look after each other. The age profile got a bit uh, younger. Some of the players were physically not as imposing. And I think that went very much to the injuries that we saw happen to Abu Dhabi, to Eduardo, to Aaron Ramsey. Horrific injuries that I've never seen happen um, in... Um, with such frequency to another football club, right? So I think as Arsenal fans, we're maybe highly attuned to the potential for what might happen to Bukayo Saka because we've seen it happen to yeah. other players. And I get what you're saying about player game. And I think he does, you know, he doesn't really complain. That's the first time I've ever really seen mm. Bukayo Saka say anything about the treatment he gets. Mm. So get up and play your game. And he doesn't get kicked out of games. He's not somebody who, mm. who even when he suffers a lot of fouls, I think if there were seven fouls on him in the Burnley game uh, at the end of January, he just gets up and he gets on with it. So, I mean, I think that is the kind of player that he is but if the perception changes do you worry that maybe 
teams might become a bit too physical and there may be the potential for injury, not just to Saka, but to, to another player. Yeah, the, the point that he makes is a really good one. And it's valid as well. It, it is because rival teams will look for weakness. And there aren't many weaknesses with this Arsenal group. But if they sense that they don't like the physical side of the game, they're always complaining about being fouled, then it will make them be more aggressive. And, mm. and opposition managers... I would do the same if I was in their corner. You would encourage your players to be physical because there is a perception that the Arsenal don't like it. So I think that Bakayo and other players would probably be advised to just crack on and and not not moan too much about it, even though I think he absolutely had a case there. The key difference for me between this group and the one that passed is, um, is that they are tougher. I've got no doubt about it. Look look at the players. Just look at the characters of the individuals in the attacking midfield section alone. Martinelli. I mean, he's a fighter, isn't he? That's one of the first phrases that comes to my mind. Martin Erdegaard, grafter. Absolutely, you know, silky. You're very smooth, but yeah. he's not shy of, of getting stuck in and closing down and, and working really hard. He, he's not soft. But Kaiosaka is as tough as they come in my opinion. And, and Smith-Rowe, I'd put in a, a really similar category. He, he, he relishes the sort of, I don't know, the aggressive side of football, the co- combative side. All of these guys, uh, they're modern players, they're silky, they're ballers, as the kids say these days, but they're also, they're also can look after themselves. And as can the, this team. I, I just think this team is, is harder than some of the previous sides, some of yeah. the Latavenga sides. They were a bit soft. They were a little bit, you know, tippy-tappy. This group, I don't, I don't view this this group uh, in that way at all. Yeah, but I mean, that's not um, any kind of justification for like the kind of reducer that snaps a guy's mm. leg into. It doesn't yeah. matter how hard you are or how willing you are to embrace the physical aspect of the game. If someone goes over the top and does you an injury, there's not much you can do about it regardless of your own um, outlook yeah. on the game. You know what I mean? Yeah, exactly. Well, well Arsenal have got to stand strong and, and be physical with themselves, haven't they? It's, mm. You have to fight fire with fire sometimes and and yeah, and be strong and aggressive. And, and again, I mean, it's, it's an area we can improve on, but I think we're we're making strides in that. You can't control, you can't control Tyrone Mings following through needlessly on, on in the way that he did. You referees can, referees can, but we, we can't control it. So, so I think that the bottom line is to for our players to be protected, the referees need to. Need to yeah, need to be a little bit firmer and not let the first two or three reducers go. Sure, because because as a player, if I'm a defender and I wasn't a defender and I never hardly ever made a tackle, but if I did and the first two that I did, I got away with. On the third, I'm probably going to go in even harder. So is that and- yeah? Is that not part of why? Saka maybe raised it and why Mikel Arteta had a word about it afterwards as well. It's not so much like, please don't kick me, opposition defender, you big brood. It's more about raising the awareness with the officials that this is an ongoing issue and something that Bakayo Saka is dealing with week in, week out, because I think he's suffered 58 
nearly 60 fouls so far this season. The next, from an Arsenal perspective, is, is 30. So twice as many as any other Arsenal player. It's about putting it in the minds of the officials. Yeah, and, and look, Fergie did it for years. A lot of managers do it. And, and do you know what? I'll backtrack a little bit. I, I think from Mikel Arteta's point of view, he should be the one talking about it. I, I, I'd rather Bakayo just crack on and, and, and do his thing. But Mikel Arteta should absolutely raise it because you don't want... He's raising it now mm. before a player gets injured. If you raise it once a player is injured, it's too late. Yeah, The damage is done. So what he's doing now is putting that seed out there that my players are getting kicked around now. There's a difference. Things have changed. We're good now. And and, and our good players aren't being protected well enough by the officials. And I, and I do think that we have a case there. I genuinely do. And I also feel, and I know we're all a little bit biased in this parish, but I do feel that, you know, when you look at Xhaka and, and the yellow card to tackle ratio or yellow card to foul ratio, it's... It's just staggering, really, when you consider some of the mm. some of the stuff that our guys have to put up with, and they get and they get away with it. So, no objections at all to Arteta planting that seed. I think it's the right thing to do, and, and I think he's got every you know he's he's got a case, a really strong case. What about um, just sort of bringing it back to the punditry that I mentioned? And we don't have to speak about individuals or anything else, but. Mm. Certainly the the punditry on ESPN talking about Saka was very much in the like, ah, get up your Nancy boy kind of stuff, you know. And I, I do wonder about the responsibility of people who are covering the game as pundits, whether they're former professionals or just former referees, people who've played in the game that, and this ties in obviously with the Steven Gerrard comments, which I think, you know, when he looks back at them, he's he's talking about, and, and you had injuries when you were a player, he's talking about how I had 16 operations and I'm sitting here with screws in my hips and, you know, I can't walk, I can't kick a ball with my grandkids, whatever it might be. That's not good. That's not a good, that, that's not a badge of honor, right? So no. what about the idea that, that when it comes to talking about the game and talking about things like this, you sort of move away from this idea that, you know, you're sort of misrepresenting the idea of Saka not wanting to be kicked as some kind of inherent softness rather than let's talk about what we can do to make the game better and safer uh, for young professionals year on year on year, that they have these attitudes maybe that stretch back to their time as players which are not really relevant in the modern day no that's true yeah i think gerard's comments were were unhelpful and and, and i don't think yeah they it, hopefully we'll look back and uh, with some regrets at them um we all want football to be aggressive we don't want it to be mm. you know no contact do we but it i think the bottom line it boils down to the criticism, I think, should be reserved for the way it's officiated and the way it's controlled. Because if you see if you see players going over the top and, and producing dangerous tackles that go unpunished, then then I think we we, we need to speak out about it. To and and look, I, I've bored myself over the last few years being critical of of Premier League referees and EFL referees. That the standard is. It's absolute garbage, in my opinion, and and it needs a, a root and branch shake up. Um, so no, I think you know our ayah and the referee and the managers and players should be talking about how are you going to protect us better. That that's the comments. It shouldn't be 
this play, player A is soft. And, and uh, look, I took loads of fouls in my time. So it's all right for, for mm. players these days to get kicked from, from pillar to post because it's not. O- on the punditry side, very quickly, I just think, I mean, obviously we saw something with, with ESP, ESPN this morning. Steve Nickel was the guy that was has been, you know, hammered basically, but by myself included, for, for some really poor punditry. Um, on that, just get your facts right. It's, it's rule number one of of being paid to talk about football is whatever comes out of your mouth, make sure you can back it up with facts. And if you can't, you're just spouting rubbish. And then, you know, that's, you know, that's poor. And, mm-hmm. and maybe it's the responsibility of broadcasters, you know, when they book these people to, to take them out if, if they continue to spout, you know, stuff that is not true. Um, yeah, I just think that, I think the ex-players do make the best pundits, um, but but they have to watch football. They have to watch it intently. They have to change, like coaches do. Yeah. Coaches evolve. Coaches, coaches in the here and now that were still coaches when I played are still coaches because they've moved with the times. And and as 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 experts in football, we have to yeah. develop and, and and change our our mindset a little bit to to adjust to the modern game. And 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 there are pundits out there that are very reluctant to do that. And maybe their time you know their time will will be up sooner rather than later because I don't don't think there's a tolerance for for outdated view certainly not when they're they're not factual yeah i think well that's the that's the key it's the factual element to these you know if you disagree with somebody that's fine football is all about opinions as we know if your opinion is based on all the evidence in front of you then great i mean i think there was an example this week as well when uh sky did their ref watch for the for the arsenal leicester game was it leicester we played last week the Aston Villa game, Granish Acker picks up the booking for, for basically nothing. Yeah. And on Sky, Ref Watch, this is supposedly an expert um, mm. piece of punditry from Dermot Gallagher. Mm. He says, well, Granish Acker had it coming. And you're thinking, well, you, you clearly haven't watched the game because he yeah. didn't make any fouls. And he got booked for his first foul. So, like, how does how do we deal with that kind of stuff as as football watchers and football fans? It's not to go in two footed, if you pardon the pun, on Dermot mm. Gallagher, but it's that kind of thing which I think really frustrates people who watch the game, watch their teams. You have people being paid for their so called expert opinion, which isn't quite um, in line with what actually well, happened. I, I, my personal view is that that referee punditry doesn't work. It's crap. Mm. It's garbage because they just defend. They just defend fellow referees. There's hardly ever, hardly ever, any criticism of, of decisions. I don't think they always come at it from a neutral perspective. So I would bin them off. That's my own. <laughs> but that's my own personal sure. point of view. I don't think they're offering anything on the Granite Jacker one. It's a joke because he was offering his handshake to the guy, and he got it. You know, there was a tussle. Okay, a foul. Absolutely, it's clearly not a yellow card foul. It's just a just a you know fifty fifty tussle goes against him. He offers a handshake, doesn't get it, and he sort of almost with with a smile just sort of brushes his arm against him. There's nothing there, mm. absolutely nothing there, and uh, and he got a yellow card for it. And the referee obviously justified it by pointing to this way, that way, this way. Like you say, if, what's he pointing at? Because yeah. there weren't any fouls, yeah. so I, 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 yeah, d- don't get it. Um, and and I, yeah, I just think 
in that position that Dermot Gallagher has to has to look at himself afterwards and say, D- D- was I fair? Was I fair to Granite Xhaka there, or was I just taking the side of the of the referee? And I, I think if, if he if he analysed himself he would realise he was wrong. Yeah, I think so. And just before we get off this topic, coming back to, I think a key point that you made is the standard standard of officiating and and the way things are allowed happen in games, which can then inform other things that happen in games. And I'm thinking of Saka being kicked by James MacArthur in the Crystal Palace game, which I've, you know, I've never seen a foul like that in the Premier League this season. But, you know, if that were Granit Xhaka, et cetera, et cetera, Tommy yeah. Asu having his face stood on, and yet with the benefit of VAR, with video evidence and all that kind of stuff, they still didn't do anything about that. And you said, you know, root and branch, I think was the word that you mm-hmm. used. I mean... How do how does how can that happen yeah. if, for example, the PGMOL are the ones that are going to, uh, if you like, do analysis of the PGMOL and then say, well, this is what we need. Surely, if football needs an independent regulator, as many people say, refereeing might need some independent assessment too. <laughs> maybe, yeah, maybe might be the way forward. It is an awkward one because I'm not an expert in in that field. I, what I don't like is that VAR officials are the guys that the next day will be out there on the pitch. Don't like it because mm. the guys on the pitch are the ones getting it wrong and they're the ones that are being asked to put it right. And, we've, and as we've seen on numerous occasions this season, especially in recent weeks, VAR officials are making what I think the majority would agree are calamitous errors of judgment. So I would prefer some kind of specialists in, in, in the VAR, some, you know, some kind of separatism from the the group of elite referees mm. just 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 because I think, I think i think that's healthier but it's going to take years because because you know i don't know what the standards like coming through i watch a lot of football in the efl it's not a lot better uh, it's probably no better unfortunately um i've spoken about this a little bit of late i do think that get, getting young players that haven't made the grade you know, it's 18, 19, 20, 21, players that, you know, had a start and didn't quite cut mm. it, to, to offer them a route back into football via referee. Now, most won't want to do it, but it, it is a, it is a quite a lucrative career. You know, you're getting great experiences in full, full stadiums. Um, you're part of the fabric of the game. If there are, you know, is, is there a pathway? Can we create a pathway for these young guys who don't have any ties, particularly to clubs, to learn mm. how to be referees take a you know degree in refereeing or whatnot <laughs> and and then you know maybe not have to start at quite the basic level where you know where michael oliver probably started a little bit higher up and to get their experience quickly um and, and to get them there because i do think that the game understanding is not quite there with 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 these uh this this current batch of officials they, yeah there's, there's a lot it's a lot of things that, that not just ex-footballers, but the fans know is wrong mm. that the referees don't seem to to be on the same page with. Yeah, I know what you're saying. It does feel a bit like trying to convince the the lifetime criminal to become a cop or something, though. You know, <laughs> yeah. but <laughs> I, I know what you mean. Just having yeah. that 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 sort of expertise, and you know, people who have played the game at a good level or whatever. You know, even as uh, young players. Can we come back to Bakayo Saka though? You know, and talk about him as a footballer. Uh, his goal against Villa was the match winner. It was his tenth goal of the season. He's had five assists on top of that. Uh, he's 20 years of age. He's doing this in a season 
season where he played an international tournament all the way to the final, obviously had the heartbreak and everything else that went along with that, the physical, the emotional, the mental stress that he has been through and he's producing like this at 20 years of age. How good is it, in your it's opinion? staggeringly good, isn't he? It's just, I think he's the best... He's got to be the best academy graduate I can remember in the, in the modern modern era, really. Um, Fabregas was sensational, wasn't he, at the same age, mm. um, even younger. But but he was someone that we sort of brought in at a later stage, didn't we? Barcelona kind of kind of developed him. I think that that yeah, Saka is it's Saka's decision making that 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 sets him apart. He just makes the right decision so much more often than the majority of 19, 20, 21-year-olds, doesn't he? Mm. He gets it right. Um, he's strong. I mean, from just with my eyes, I'm sure you can see it yourself, it, he's running so much more powerfully now with the ball. So when he gets the ball at his feet, there's more pace, there's more power about him. Mm. And, of course, also more confidence because he's he's very settled as a, as a Premier League performer now. So... Yeah, he reminds me a lot of, of Rocky. You know, David Rokas, there's a little bit of that about him because he's so strong and powerful, but also got the skill and the technique to go with it. And yeah, I, I just love him. I think he's he's superb. And um, yeah, what I also like about him is that he's not a showy player. Nothing that Saka does is for for show. Do you, do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You yeah, get yeah, flashy yeah. players. That, players of his ability, there's a tendency to maybe get a bit cocky at times, but nothing he really does is about that. It's about the end product, isn't it? And, the, the, the flashy moments are kind of the end product, if you like. It's the, yeah. the, the way he scores a goal. It's the way he provides the assist. It's yeah. not so much like uh, flicking a trick down the sideline and then do nothing with it after that. Those, those really eye-catching moments are the moments with end product. Definitely. And and the finishing's obviously got much better. He's, he's clearly worked on it. I think he can still get better uh, at that aspect of his game. And, and when he does, uh, I mean, you, you'd probably be looking at, how many goals has he got? Did you say 10 for the season? 10 so far, yeah. Yeah, I think, I think in a couple of years, we could probably be expecting him to get in the sort of 16 to 20 category. For sure. Um, and if you've got a wide guy doing that yeah. and you've got a striker topping 20 and maybe another wide guy, you know, around the 15 mark, then you got yourself a team, haven't you? You've yeah. certainly got some firepower. <laughs> His contract, um, apparently there are discussions, David Ornstein was reporting during the week that there have been some initial discussions about his contract. And you can understand why, obviously. Um, you know, he's got two years left, I think. That's the perfect time to do it. But also... It's a reward for his development, what he's doing, his his importance to the team and everything else. It also feels like a really good time to convince Bakayo Saka that, look, this is where your future lies. This team is, is building nicely. It's growing nicely. You're playing with other academy graduates, guys around your own age, um, potentially. And look, there are 10 games to go. We know uh, that there are still a lot of points to play for. You could achieve your ambitions here. And that is really an important part of, um, you know, any good player is going gonna, is gonna to want to win things. And as much as their connection might be to the club they grew up at, if they don't feel like they can win what they want to win, 
we know what happens. We've seen it happen, not just at Arsenal, but at, but at lots of other clubs. And the best way for Arsenal to keep Bukayo Saka isn't just to say, here's a mountain of money, sign on for six years or whatever it is. It is to have him as part of a team which is going places. 100%, yeah. It, it feels like yeah an opportune moment to, to, to start those talks for sure because the feel-good factor is there. I think we can all see and the players can feel it, can't they? They can feel that this team is, is going places, that mm. they're really improving and... And you, yeah, it it would be heartbreaking, wouldn't it, to see to see this group broken up before they'd reached their peak? Because they're nowhere near their peak, are they? Mm. This should be a group that are at their probably ultimate in three years' time. I'd say three or four years' time. So, yeah, get get them signed down now. But 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 yeah, that's why top four is is so key, obviously, this season. Because if a contract isn't sorted. Mm. By the time that that's done and dusted, then then there'll be that question mark, won't there? But I think that there is a, enough of a body of evidence already to persuade Saka, Smith Rowe, Martinelli, all these guys, all these key players, that this is the place to be. Um, yeah, it, it would be interesting to see what what tact Arsenal are taking on those negotiations as well. Um, he knows he's, the manager loves him as well. He yeah. knows that he's going to play every week. Yeah. I mean, that's, as a player, that's that's a good place to be. Um, I mean, there is that there is that threat, I suppose, that that Mikel Arteta could get poached as well. He's not just the you you've got Saka and mm. you've got others, but there is that threat if Arsenal continue to thrive and, and flourish that he could be the one that is. Is taken away, you know, in, in, in the short to medium term. So, is again, that something you would consider right now? That you know, regardless of the ten games that we still have to play, that that he has a year left on his contract. I think come the summer. I mean, I, I look at it, and if I were Mikel Arteta, this is just me having gone through everything I've gone through since I arrived at Arsenal to mm. to to be on the cusp of something which feels really exciting. I don't know that I would necessarily be tempted because all the the pain of all the other stuff and all the other stuff he's had to deal with and the mistakes he's made along the way that have led him to this path, I'd be like, well, no, I want to continue here. But yeah. we know what football is like. We know that if there's a job somewhere and it's, you know, it's a tempting job, that can happen. So, I mean, it must be something yeah. they're thinking about, no? Yeah, exactly. If, you've, if you build up a company from scratch, you know, and you, you earn no money and it's horrendous and you have to do all the all the dirty work and, you you know, it's, it's horrible for, for three years. You, you, you're losing money for fun. And then suddenly it's starting to gel yeah. and it's starting to click and you're employing people and the money's coming in. And then, and then you know, you're just, you're just on the cusp of achieving what you set out to do, not many people would then leave that company and sell it, would they? Yeah. They just wouldn't. Um, you'd want to. You'd want to get that little bit further. So, so I take your point, and and I think that yeah, Mikel, Mikel seems like he's fully committed, and I think the players are as 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 well. I don't think we're in that territory yet where where Saka and and the other guys will get their heads turned. But if in two or three years' time we mm. haven't won anything, then obviously that. That situation changes, and and there might come a time as well where Arsenal are tested. I mean, luckily, Barcelona and Real Madrid aren't flush, you know, with, yeah. with cash at the moment. You, you're only really looking at Liverpool, Man United, and, and City. You could probably erase Man United from the conversation 
and Chelsea at the moment for various reasons. He's looking at Liverpool and City as the ones that can pluck your your mm. best players away with a crazy offer. Sure. Um, and yeah, but it would. Yeah, let's hope it doesn't come. But it, it wouldn't surprise me. No, yeah. You know, City no. tested Spurs last year with Kane. They might test us. That was um, a that was a reality we had to deal with when we had our best teams. Was that when you've got brilliant teams and brilliant players, other teams want them. So you, you're going to have to deal with that, and that is a consequence of having good players and a good team and everything else. I mean, exactly. Yeah, and, and look, this summer, this summer, as well as hopefully tying down Saka and maybe one or two others. If we then go out and buy mm. r- players that improve that f- first eleven, clearly in the striker department and, and maybe in central midfield, those two those two positions that I think we all know about get filled with quality. Mm. Then again, I mean, why would you want to go? Exactly. Can I just ask you, just finally? Um, there's been a lot of talk about celebrations uh, this week, and and I don't quite know where this has come from. This development that all of a sudden you you can only celebrate the biggest achievements in the game. Like you're not allowed to celebrate unless you win the World Cup. Blah blah blah. I don't really know where it's come from. I've got some yeah, yeah. theories about why it's happening around Arsenal at this point, but without going into that too much, as a former player. In key moments, in games like the Villa game, when you hang on and you win, and in the Wolves games, and 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 uh, victories like that, which you know are really, really important, like they may not be what people would consider the big games, like mm. against your big rivals, but the three points are the three points, whether you win them against Man City or whether you win them against Aston Villa or mm. Wolves or whatever it is. How do you view those celebrations, not just between the the players themselves? but between the players and the fans. And what does it tell you about the team and its development? Does it tell you anything uh, beyond they're just happy? Or is it maybe a sign that there is something actually a bit more going on under the hood, if you like? There is. It's a great sign. And I love to see it. I can't get enough of these celebrations. Celebrate bigger. Yeah. Um, <laughs> no, because there are a number of reasons. Um, first of all, it's quite quite humble in a way that a win at Wolves and a win at Villa would, would, would mean so much to the players. It's not being big headed. I mean, the, the, you know, certain teams would, would just say, you know, there'd be an arrogance about them. Whereas why, you know, well, we expected to do this, but this Arsenal team is growing and we know where they came from. When this group first started, they were mid table and, and now they're, they're on the cusp of achieving, you know, the first step on, on the path to challenging for the title, which is obviously where we, where we want to be. And, yeah, I really, I, I like it. I think the key things for me are the connection between the fans and the players. Mm. It's not been this strong for a long, long, long time. Yeah. And and that is t- is to be celebrated. And I think we should, we as Arsenal fans, you know, should, should really embrace that. Yeah. This club was really divided under the Wenger years. It was it was Wenger out of Wenger in. You know, that, that was one thing. There were so many other things. It was quite toxic. When you know when we lost the foot, the quality of the football after Wenger left wasn't great, and that was causing a lot of lot of unhappiness and again divides among the fans. And for the first time in years, I don't know, I don't know how far you, you lose track. You know, maybe a decade. First time in so long, it feels like the fans have a team that they really respect and admire and enjoy watching. 
And the players are just responding to that, aren't they? They're feeding mm. off that, that positive energy. And it feels like a family. It feels like we're all in it together. Yeah. It feels like the old days, you know, in 91, you know, all in it together. Um, you know, the other years, you know, 98 was similar. And, yeah, we're, we're, we're all on board. And there's no them and us. It's not about, you know, the fans think this and we're the play. There's no separation. We're all Arsenal. And that, and I think other people are jealous of it. Yeah. I think other people are jealous of it. That is my, my assessment of it. I was jealous when Leicester won the FA Cup and I saw their owner on the pitch celebrating with the players, the fans being absolutely adored. And they were that, they they couldn't have been of more, a happier family, could they, when Leicester won the FA Cup? Manager, owner, players, fans, together. I was so envious of that because we don't have that with the ownership. But we're starting to get the rest of it. We're starting to get the players and the manager loving each other. We're starting to get the players, the manager and the fans all loving one another. That's what it's all about, football. I mean, following a football club and being a football fan is tribalistic, isn't it? It's, mm. it's us against everybody else. We want to win. And and if you win, enjoy it. Enjoy the moment. What's the celebration police need to need to get, you know, need to get in the bin. It's a yeah. joke, really. I mean and, the, the, But it's born out of jealousy. I'm telling you, Andrew, it's it's born out of other clubs looking at what Arsenal have got now and think and not liking. Yeah. And there is as well, without being able to measure it completely, there is a tangible benefit for the players on the pitch in the games when they're I don't know, you think about your motivations, you just want to win a game of football, but if you're doing it for your mates on the pitch, if you're doing it for the fans that you're connected to, if it gives you 1%, half a percent, whatever it is, that little bit extra, it it can sometimes make a difference in games. It gives you, it does give you those extra percentages. It really does. And when it, I'll tell you when it matters the most, and this was so stark when we conceded the goal to Liverpool, um, Firmino's goal, wasn't it? Mm-hmm. The roar that went up around Emirates Stadium was incredible, and it and that kind of thing is like, lads, don't worry about it. We're still with you. We're yeah. still with you. We still believe in you. Just go out there and you know get yourselves a goal. Obviously, it didn't happen, but instead of those f- players feeling guilty or crestfallen and and just miserable, everyone came together to say, "Nah, come on, we we believe we believe in in us and." And that that makes such a difference. It really does. And it's yeah. I, I'm. I just don't think the environment at Arsenal has been this healthy for a long, long time. And and yeah, it's better that the environment is better now than when we were winning FA Cups. Mm. Um. So, so yeah, it's we should cherish it as Arsenal fans. And and actually, the more that other people moan about it, you know, the more it shows that they're worried probably <laughs> about where we're, yeah. where we're headed. I mean, it is nice, isn't it? To, yeah. to, it is nice for, for the people on the telly, the radio and whatnot to suddenly be talking about Arsenal in a, in a really positive manner. And, and, uh, and, and that's, that's why this is coming. This is, that's why this is coming to bear. No one moans about Liverpool celebrating or city and they do. They celebrate mm. just as hard. Liverpool when they beat us. They were going mad. Yeah. And uh, but, but that's what happens in football. It was a big win for them. And, and and they've got that right to celebrate, as do we, when we win at Villa, when we win at Wolves, and obviously, you know, in a few weeks' time when we win at Spurs. Absolutely. And on that positive note, we will leave it there. Adrian, <laughs> great to talk to you. Thanks a million.
Yeah, cheers, mate. Thank you very much indeed to Adrian. You can find him on Twitter at Adrian J. Clark, at Adrian J. Clark. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. All right, with me now on the Arscast to talk about his brand new book. It's called Get It On, How the 70s Rocked Football. And delighted to welcome back John Sperling. Hi, John. Hi, Andrew. How are you? I'm good. Thank you very much. Um, Before we get into some of the uh, interesting chapters in this book, what prompted you to to delve back in time to go and write a book about football in the in the 70s? Because we're about the same age. We grew up in the 70s, but maybe it wasn't necessarily the the most formative decade for our footballing um, lives, if you know what I mean, in terms of like how how much you soak in. I guess we're grounded in it, but but. um, maybe there's a lot from this era that we don't quite remember ourselves. Yeah, no, that's right. I mean, I'm, I was born in, in 1970, so I got into football at the tail end of the decade mm. um, in an era when there's there are very, very few, um, you know, live TV matches shown. You had the FA Cup finals, which which was got me into Arsenal, Ipswich mm. Arsenal, or Arsenal Ipswich was the first FA Cup final I ever watched. Um, you had the European Cup finals with Liverpool and Forest as well. And you had England games. Um, but I was always into football. And I'm, I've been, maybe been a politics and history teacher as well. I'm into the history and the politics of it as well. So I, I grew up fascinated by the era. And there's actually there's two things that kind of always stick with me from the late 70s. The first is that um, my mum my and dad took me and my sister up to London at the time of um, the winter of discontent. Um, when, you know, what, amongst other things, uh, the, the refuse wasn't being collected in London. And I was struck by the piles of rubbish in a London park, might have been Hyde Park, I don't know, with these guys in spacesuits going around spraying it. Mm. So I remember that well. I also remember the three-day weeks when um, there was no electricity on in houses or factories in, in you know for for two the, you know two days in the week, and we were huddled around candles with mum and dad as well. So you know, as a kid, you look back, all oh, that was exciting without actually realising the politics that was going on, um, you know, behind it. 
Yeah. Um, so that's that's what got me into it. Um, and obviously, you know, I got into my football at the latter part of the decade. So, the uh, you know, the Ipswich Arsenal I watched when obviously Ipswich won. And then what really, really got me uh, literally hooked on Arsenal was the 1979 FA Cup final, yeah. the three-minute final against Manchester United, which just, uh, like many people of my age, got me, got me hooked in there for life. But, sure. you know, as uh, growing up, I was always into my history my politics the music from the era the football so this book really I've, I've, I've wanted to do it since i was about 25 but it's taken me 26 years to get it over the line uh, <laughs> i've well, written other books in the meantime <laughs> yeah. it's always something i wanted to do but it did take me a while to get it done yeah i mean <laughs> it's quite funny when you talk about the politics and you talk about you know the three-day week and all the things that were going on back in 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 the 70s and you know, you hear people talk about the good old days and I'm not sure they were that good, but it, it's such a, it's such a backdrop to everything that this book is about. The, you know, the politics, the hooliganism, um, society, culture, all of those things as football in some ways begins to emerge as something a bit more than just a Saturday afternoon game. It, it yeah. starts to seep a little bit more, into the culture on a day-to-day basis. Yeah, no, it, it, it does. It does, and yeah. I mean, first of all, I I, I, would, I never wanted to write just a homage to the to football in the seventies. I mean, you know, some people say it's a golden era, and it was when football was was better. Well, I don't agree with that. I mean, there are some elements to seventies football which kind of have been lost and seem poignant. I mean, the fact that stadia, for instance, were rooted firmly within the community, the fact that it's much less moneyed and footballers were more on a level with, with we know, with, with fans and that kind of thing. But as you say, you know, you've got the, the hooliganism, the racism, the pretty shoddy state of a lot of the stadia as well. So it's a mix. But it is true that in the 70s, um, it's the advent, I think, of colour TV, yeah. which really starts to elevate football into doing something else. And um, and I think it's it's that 1970 World Cup panel um, pulled together by Jimmy Hill, which had um, uh, Malcolm Allison, Derek Dugan, Pat Crow, and, and our very own Bob McNabb, who had unluckily didn't make it into Alf's final final twenty two mm. for the World Cup squad. Which kind of um, it, it suddenly means that footballers are being talked about. Um, so when they had a day off the ITV panel, um, they were mobbed in London in the way that footballers, that didn't happen at the time, apart from maybe George Best. And so suddenly, colour TV elevates footballers into personalities. And the 70, per- the 70 panel kind of talked about football in a way, minus the swearing maybe, that, you know, ordinary football fans <laughs> talk down the pub with their mates about. So yeah. it's, a, it's a real key moment, the, the advent of colour TV. And and what it means as well when we look back, uh, Jimmy Hill, a man who was involved in many things in football, um, you know, yeah. from the end of the the maximum wage and yeah. and sort of realizing that football could be more than just a game. Yeah, um, and wrote the words to good old Arsenal. Yes, as well. he did. I mean, they're not <laughs> the most complicated lyrics you'll ever see in your life, but you know, fair play to him. We got to give him his props for that. But but the 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 idea that what we see now on television. And the way that football is covered, and the way that uh, you know football is presented to us, in some ways stems from then as well as people who said, "Hang on, we could do this in a different way." 
Yeah, no, definitely, definitely. I mean, I think that, you know, the viewing figures at the time, there's only three channels in, in the 70s, BBC One, BBC Two and ITV. Yeah. And match of the day and the Big Mac pulled in, or whatever the regional one was where you lived, pulled in astronomically large figures. But you also now had opportunities springing up for punditry as well, which you'd, which you'd never had before. And so you have Malcolm Allison, Big Mal, as he's better known, who was then Manchester City coach, and Brian Clough, who start to seize the opportunities that TV give them. And they are the first kind of TV personalities in, in football. Um, and they seize, you know, every opportunity going. So Clough, for instance, had had a column for the TV Times. He was a panelist on ITV in a Daily Express column. He was he was everywhere. Yeah. And I think in the book, I say this. I'm not, I don't think I'm exaggerating. I think he probably was the most the, the most high profile personality of the seventies. You know, forget any politician or pop star. Clough was probably the most high profile person everywhere. Imitated by Mike Yarwood, of course. Yeah, well, I mean, yeah, Mike Yarwood, if people don't know, if, if listeners from abroad, he was a, a very famous impressionist uh, on yeah. British television back then in the in the 70s and 80s. But, I mean, Clough is a great example of of somebody who straddled the world between personality and football, and he was obviously brilliant on both counts. Being you know, he was an amazing football right. manager, but also hugely yeah. entertaining when he was on television. You, you referenced the... Uh, the interview that takes place between himself and Don Reavy, yeah. uh, which you can still find on YouTube now, where yeah. Clough, who had been uh, manager of Leeds for 44 days, whatever it was, who went in and told all the Leeds players, throw your medals away because you haven't won them yeah. fairly, uh, you know, was relieved of his duties. But then you have this sort of, not quite a showdown interview on television, but it's sort of like if someone had at some point Arsene Wenger and Jose Mourinho at the height yeah. of their um, yeah. enmity and put them in a TV studio, yeah. literally sitting side by side um, yeah. for everyone's entertainment. And it probably yeah. would have been great, in fairness. Yeah, it's incredible TV even now. I mean, it was it was kind of copied, wasn't it, in The um, the Damned United, where yeah. Michael Sheen played Brian Clough. And the guy of Star Trek, I can't remember his name, is Colin Malmini, is it, played... Um, Colin Meany, yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's it. Played, um, played, played Don Reed. But it, it's incredible TV. And as you say, it would be like getting, you know, Wenger and, you know, Mourinho or Wenger or Ferguson together. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It just, you know, it just couldn't happen. And it just shows then that even the top personalities in football were, were I think, far more accessible. One of the things that comes across in the book, I, people talk about the, the Premier League as like a tipping point for football. And I think that's true in many ways. You yeah. know, football was at a point where you know, it had to do something and, you know, it went a certain way. And there's another story to be told about how it all happened. David Dean's involvement, looking at Monday Night Football, the product of the NFL in America and how it served to viewers across the US. And they, they looked at that and thought, we need to do some of this when it comes to English football in order to, to kick it on. I, I, I think there's somehow an, uh, um, an idea that that is when the commercialism of football and footballers and football clubs really began maybe that's when it went to another level yeah. but in this we can see players like george best as you mentioned peter marinello who was signed from hibernian who was uh, uh, talked about as arsenal's version of of george best it didn't turn out that way but no, players no. becoming more 
aware of their own image, aware yeah. of their earning potentials, and, and yeah. probably because they had to, because wages at football clubs were it's not the same as it is now. There's still this idea that like footballers are very well paid, but they're not so distant from the common man, if you like. But you can see very clearly that there are things during the 1970s where players, clubs, personalities begin to emerge for the earning potential as much as anything. Yeah, that's right. I mean, you know, by the early 70s, it's 10 years after the abolition of the maximum wage. So top footballers are earning good money. And, you know, you mentioned Peter Marinello. I mean, a lot of the double winning side of 71 were homegrown. And homegrown players never earn as much as imported players. It's been a bit of a sticking point at Arsenal down the years, hasn't it? With, mm. with Ashley Cole and, you know, a lot of players have felt slightly slightly let down by the fact they haven't been paid. So Marinello, you know, came in and suddenly he's, you know, he's, he's helping Tony Blackburn present Top of the Pops and he's awarding <laughs> a prize on there. He's doing modelling contracts. He's, he's quoted in pop magazines talking about his love of uh, the band Spooky Tooth as well. But, but Terry O'Neill, who um, I interviewed for the book, took a picture of Marinello just after he joined Arsenal. And he said, I felt terribly sorry for the young man because he was clearly a boy in a man's world. And there were these guys around Marinello and O'Neill said, you know, you just knew that if it didn't go right for Marinello and he never did shift Geordie Armstrong out of the, out of the team, it was, it was going to go, it was going to go wrong. But yeah, the playing power, sorry, that the earning power of footballers in the early seventies, uh, top footballers means that they're now sought after personalities. They're, you know, appearing at, at nightclubs, discos, they've got newspaper columns and some of them like Malcolm McDonald, who was, then at Newcastle, then went to Arsenal, actually earned more from what they did outside the game mm. than actually their, their playing contract. So, you know, you, you could earn good money. I mean, I interviewed Peter Osgood, who, who played for Chelsea, and I think he'd, he said to me he was on around 150, was it 200 quid, 150 quid a week in 1970, the equivalent of around 75 grand now. A tidy wage, yeah. but not that puts you out of reach of, you know, average Joe football fan kind of sure. thing. Um, but but they are certainly moving, and you've got say Bobby Bobby Moore living in um, you know a nice plush mansion in Essex now with his with his wife and his kids. So footballers are moving in a more upwardly mobile direction, definitely. Just coming back to society and culture and and the idea of hooliganism, and and it carried on obviously into the nineteen eighties. But these sort yeah. of strands of of what was going on, I think obviously reflective of the way society was as a whole, but also tied in with the emergence of, of black footballers as well is an important part of what happened during the 1970s. So trying to trying to thread that particular needle between those things must have been a little bit difficult. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, that's right. I mean, for the book, I interviewed um, Brendan Batson, who started out at Arsenal, and Cyril Regis from a from West Brom point of view, and also, you know, Trevor Lee and Phil, Phil Walker, who played for, for Millwall. Um, and yeah, it was tough for the relatively small number of, of black players who played in, in the game, um, you know, at that time. I mean, the, the abuse they put up with was, was shocking. And what struck me when I spoke to the players was that the majority of them had no choice, really, but to shrug and, and get on with it because there was no kind of network mm. you know they, they couldn't they couldn't get on a on a group chat and say and share experiences um there was no you know colleagues or, or teammates might have had their back 
but there was very little they could actually do about it. And there was no one in authority in the game who made any efforts to stamp out the racism which, you know, came off the terraces, you know, at that time. It's actually Gerald Finstadt, who's the first commentator to call out racists on TV when West Brom, with Cunningham, Regis and Batson in the team, beat Man United at Old Trafford. And he actually calls them out just as Tony Bomber-Brown scores for them. Um, but, yeah, it's a sad part and parcel of the game in, in the 70s um, that you hear every time you watch to YouTube clip from hmm. the 70s. Yeah. There, I mean, there's so many things in this book that are, are uh, will resonate with fans who grew up of a particular era, but I think if you want to um, look back, if you're a younger fan, if you want to look back and, and try and understand where the Premier League has come from and, and how we are, where we are right now. Uh, there's loads yeah. in this, but there's one final thing I just want to talk about because I read yeah. it in the book and I was immediately catapulted back into my youth. Can you please, um, for the listener who may have no idea about this, explain the conceit of superstars? Superstars, what a what a show. So Superstars um, began in Britain. It, was, it came from America where um, <clears throat> you'd have sportsmen for a variety of disciplines. You could have footballers who generally didn't do all that well, actually. But you had you had um, uh, athletes, you had, um, you know, racing drivers, the whole lot. And they would compete in a number of uh, events that had nothing to do with their own discipline. So you had pistol shooting, weightlifting, canoeing, swimming. Um, and, and footballers tended to do well in the, in the running events, obviously. Sure. They tended to do less well in the canoeing and you know I think very famously Stan Bowles of QPR was had the worst ever showing in superstars where he got eight eight points um, the record low and it's kind of apart from shooting a hole in the table his uh, his <laughs> moment of infamy really was when he's, he, he strayed out of lane in his canoe and torpedoed Malcolm McDonald um, who uh, you know was was less than impressed and was about to put pen to paper for Arsenal for was it three hundred and thirty three thousand and three hundred thirty three pounds thirty three pence um, and the two got on even less well after that but you couldn't have superstars anymore because the insurance wouldn't sure. allow it. And very famously, Kevin Keegan of Liverpool at the time fell off his bike. And David Vine said, you know, he thought he died. He, he literally scraped all the all the skin off his back and was in hospital on a drip for two or three days. So <laughs> sportsmen, sportsmen these days, just they just would not, they just wouldn't do it. No, they, they wouldn't. Would, they wouldn't be allowed to do it. I mean, I remember the Keegan thing, and I remember, you know, the idea that you're going to send these guys out to do all these events against each other, like football clubs <laughs> wouldn't have it. But then they, you know, the, the the rationale back then was that actually this could be good. Like the guy will earn a few quid and it'll raise the profile of the football club and everything yeah. else. It's absolutely. Yeah. Exactly. It's, Very good publicity for the club. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. It's bonkers stuff. Well, look, it's all in there. The book is called Get It On, How the 70s Rock Football. We do have a couple of copies to give away, so stay tuned. I'll give you the details of that, John, for now. Thanks very much and good luck with the book. Thanks, Andrew. Cheers. The book is called Get It On, How the 70s Rocked Football. It's by John Sperling. You can follow John on Twitter at John Sperling1, at John Sperling1. And we have three copies of the book to give away. So if you fancy one, just answer the very simple question. In the 70s, Arsenal paid a transfer fee of £333,333 for which player? Send your answer, please to competition at arsblog.com. That is competition at arsblog.com. And we'll give you the winners on next week's show.
Right. Well, that is about that for this particular episode. Hope you enjoyed it. Thank you, as always, for being here. James and I will be here on Monday with an Arscast Extra, of course, and we'll have some Patreon stuff for you next week as well. So join us for that. In the meantime, have yourselves a great weekend, an Arsenal-free weekend it might be, but have a good one all the same. And we'll catch you on the next one. Until then, cheers. Bye-bye. My old man used to say to me, good health doesn't bring you happiness. And he's right. Who needs good health? I remember back in my day, I used to play football with all kinds of aches and strains. Aches and strains? That's nothing. I remember one game I had to play with a broken nose after me dad had punched me head in the night before. Broken nose? Luxury. I remember playing in a cup final with 17 shattered metatarsals. That was before anybody knew what a metatarsal was. What I wouldn't give for a metatarsal. I remember going an entire league season with a groin strain so bad my urethra was tangled and had to piss into a bag and then drink cups of tea made out of my own bloody piss. You were lucky back in my day. Preparation for a big game was the manager would line us up, then he'd run us over in his four cortina, then make us run up and down cobbled streets covered with broken glass and new syringes, all the while our shattered pelvises and hip bones swinging wildly from side to side before we come back to the stadium and we'd have to clean the terraces by literally eating the dirt that was on them from the night before. You had it made. The year I played a tiny part in us winning the league title, we used to have to go to training in the middle of the night. When we got there, the manager would break our legs with a baseball bat, then literally murder us in cold blood. After he buried us in a shallow grave, we had to dig our way out, make our own way to away games, play for 90 minutes on a boggy pitch using a cannonball for the football, smoke 20 fags at half time or we get our tongues cut out, and at the final whistle when we got back into changing room, the manager would whip out a cutlass and disembowel us and make us eat each other's gizzards. Will you try and tell that to the young people today and would they believe you? No! Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. 
Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com.